our part four today, I want to talk to you about dealing with HMPs. Dealing with HMPs. Does anybody want to guess what that stands for? Good job. You're not going to guess? Nobody? High maintenance people. Good job. HMPs are high maintenance. She doesn't get a clap for that. Does somebody clap for her? No, she doesn't get a clap for this. Stop it. I quit. HMPs, there are some people out there, they don't want to grow. They don't want to get closer to Jesus. They don't want to have any kind of repentance for the sins. They don't want to uh, humble themselves. They only want to steal your resources. And there are times when people will take advantage of your kindness. They'll take advantage of the position you have in their life, and they may somewhat manipulate you emotionally to give them what they want rather than what they need. Your position could be mom or dad, and they manipulate that to get things out of you. Your position may be a son or a daughter. I know parents that will manipulate their children to try to get things out of them, money, time, energy. If you don't call me every week, I'm not going to be able to make it through this. If you don't visit me every Friday, I'm going to be so discouraged. These people are kind of high maintenance. And to give you some examples of high maintenance people, here's five different qualities that they may possess. One, two, three, four, five of these. Number one, they always have urgent needs. Everything's always urgent. They got to have it fixed right now. They call you up and if you don't answer the phone when they call, man, they're going to be upset with you. Two, they get easily offended. It's like no matter how you try to not offend them, somehow they get offended. Number three, they handle money poorly. I didn't say they can't make money. They can make it, but they just handle it very, very poorly. Number four, there's constant drama in their life. Their life is like a, a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. It's constant drama in relationships. This person broke up with me. This person loves me. This is bad. My boss doesn't like me. I got fired from this job. I, I love this job. I hate this job. Constant drama. Number five, they're seldom content. They're seldom content with you. They're seldom content with their life. They don't know how to live in the moment. They're so worried about tomorrow, which hasn't come yet. They're so upset about yesterday, which has already passed, and there's nothing they can do about it. And they don't know how to be content with where they're at in their life right now. Now, <clears throat> it's good for us to help people. It's good for us to be good to people and give to people. But we can't make the mistake of becoming somebody's God. We can't make the mistake of becoming somebody's source for life. Psalms 118.8 says it's better to rely on God than to trust in people. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting confidence in people. It's just better to rely on God than people. And in all of our lives, we will never fulfill our God-given destiny as long as we see a person as our main source. God is the one who supplies all our needs, and nowhere in the Bible does it say a person is supposed to supply all of your needs. That's God's job. And a lot of times, high maintenance people will run to us and run to us, and, and they will, they'll take advantage of your kindness and your good heart. They'll take advantage of the fact that you're a Christian. And they'll say things and do things to try to get you to give them what it is they want to feel better in that moment of their life. When this happens, and if you allow somebody to do this to you, there's a word in the Bible that you have turned into. And you're not going to like this word, but it's biblical, and that word is an idol. An idol is something that takes the place of God in someone's life. And many of you, you say, I just love them so much and I don't want them to get hurt. No, every one of us need to get hurt at some point in our life. Every one of us need to fall at some point in our life. Every one of us need to hit rock bottom at least one time in our life to where there's nobody there to pick us up except for God. 
We will never be able to fulfill, fulfill our God-given destiny as long as we are relying on an idol or on a person more than we rely on God. Now, the word idol sounds harsh, right? We don't really like that word. So I have a word to take place of that. <clears throat> that word is a crutch. These are crutches. This is something that a doctor gives somebody whenever they have broken bones or they can't stand on their own two feet. And so they're given a crutch. And the thing about a crutch is a crutch is fine during a season. It's not supposed to be permanent. A crutch is supposed to be something that is temporary. It's only supposed to be in our life until we heal. It's not supposed to be there forever because the problem is if you spend your whole life relying on crutches, you will never stand on your own two feet. You'll never be able to run. You'll never be able to do all the things that you know you want to do. That, you, that you, You'll never be able to realize the potential that's on the inside of you as long as you have crutches in your life or as long as you are being a crutch for somebody else. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through, what's that word there? Christ who strengthens me. How many is people, they will take the word Christ, the name Christ, out of this scripture and they'll insert your name. I can do all things through my spouse who always strengthens me. Your spouse is not responsible for your joy in life. Your spouse is not responsible to make sure you don't have bitterness in your heart and there's unforgiveness in your heart. Your spouse is not responsible to make sure you're happy and you're content with life. That's your responsibility. I can do all things through my mom and dad who strengthen me. No, listen, you're 35 years old. Move out the house. Get a job. <laughs> you can't rely on your parents the rest of your life. I can do all things through my pastor or my church leader or my friend who strengthens me. It's great that God sends us people for a season of our life, but it's not supposed to last forever. It's not supposed to be there forever. One time, God told Moses, he said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, God, I can't do this. I st 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 stutter, God. I can't talk for, 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 for you. That actually wasn't intended. That last stutter was me personally. But anyway, and so, um, so here's what God said to him in Exodus 4.12. Same thing God's saying to you. He said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll give you the words to speak. Rely on me. Moses said, nope, I can't do it. I got to have my brother Aaron with me. Aaron's a good speaker. I have to have him there. I'm not going to be able to do it. So he takes Aaron with him. And if you study the passage, God did this. You can't use a crutch your whole life. God did this miracle in Moses' life up on the mountain. And Moses kept thinking about that miracle over and over and over. And by the time they got to Pharaoh, by the time they stood in front of Pharaoh, the Bible says that Aaron never spoke a single word. When they got to Pharaoh, Aaron was about to step up and Moses said, you know what? I got this. I can do this. I can talk for myself. And Moses takes a step forward. He gets rid of his crutches. He looks at Pharaoh and says, God said to let his people go. Do you realize that you are holding people back from what God wants to do in their life when you remain a crutch in their life past the time that should be allotted for that crutch? How maintenance people rely on you more than they rely on God? They see you as their source. They see you as their source. I read how when a baby eagle is born, the mom and dad have already created a bigger nest for that baby eagle to fit in with them. The nest is very warm, very cozy. The mom stays in the nest with the baby eagle and she covers the baby eagle to, to help um, protect it from the elements. 
while the father goes out and gets the food. The father provides, goes and gets the food. What's interesting about this, I even read where some father eagles will come back with little sticks or acorns for the baby eagle to play with. No, they can't eat it, just to play with it, just to strengthen its beak and all that kind of thing. Well, everything's fine for that baby eagle. His life is perfect, couldn't get any better. Mom and daddy's taking care of him, everything's fine. Until the day the baby eagle learns how to fly. Guess which parent takes the baby eagle up in the clouds to teach it how to fly? The mother. The mother grabs her little eagle by the claws and pulls it way up in the sky, soaring in the clouds. The little eagle thinks, man, life is better than I thought. I get this free ride. Look at all these sights. It sees the Myrtle Beach State Park, and then it goes a little bit further north, and it sees the hotels and condos. Then it sees K&W, and it gets so excited because the eagle is Baptist. And so it's flying around, and then all of a sudden, that baby eagle thinks everything's great, no problems in the world, and mama eagle lets go of that baby, opens up her claws, and this baby's falling at 90 miles an hour. I was imagining that baby eagle is thinking something like this. I thought you said you loved me. You said you'd always be there for me. You promised me you wouldn't let nothing bad happen to me. And look, I'm falling. What have I done to deserve this? Haven't I been a good child? Remember those things I did for you and now you're doing this to me? How wrong is that? I can't believe you're doing this. And while that baby eagle's falling, all of a sudden it thinks, I wonder what would happen if I expand my wings just a little bit. Sure enough, it does that and it catches some air and it starts to soar way up in the clouds just like mom and dad. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32.11, the Lord is like an eagle that stirs up her nest, teaching her young how to fly. Listen, God wants y'all to be able to expand your own wings and learn how to rise above your circumstances in your life and soar like an eagle up in the clouds, but you will never soar like an eagle if every time you fall, you have to call this person and this family member and this parent and this friend to help bail you out. You will never, ever expand your wings and be all God's created you to be. Whenever we started the church, um, I knew God called me to, 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 to pastor, but I didn't know he called me to preach. And so I was great starting a church. I, had a, I was a visionary, and I'm good with administrative stuff. And so I started church. It took me three months to write my first sermon. It was like a six-minute long sermon, and I would throw up before service. I was so anxious, so embarrassed. I couldn't talk to anybody before church or after church out of the insecurity of standing up here and speaking. And so um, <clears throat> I thought, well, God, you're going to send somebody to preach, and I'll just do all the pastoring. And the first week, he didn't send anybody. Second week, he didn't send anybody. Third week, he didn't send anybody. After two years, I finally thought, you know what? Maybe I can preach on my own. I might have this down pat. But there was a lady who was a retired teacher. She's a theologian. She's in her 70s. And she would help me every single week with my sermons. I'd call her every week. We'd spend six to eight hours. I'd ask questions. She'd teach me how to study the Bible. And I had this thought. I'll keep preaching as long as she's in my life. If she ever dies, if anything happens, I'm going to have to quit because I won't be able to make it. After a few years of that, um, I started not calling her anymore. And I studied the Bible by myself. And I learned how to you know, read God's word and all that kind of stuff. Then I left ministry a few years ago. I came back, and when I came back in 2016, uh, Pastor Pam agreed to be my associate pastor. And then I thought, as long as she's always there for me, I'll be okay. 
But now if she ever leaves, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. In fact, um, it's interesting, whenever uh, last year she told me she was going to start her own church, my, the first words out of my mouth were congratulations. The first thoughts in my head were, I can't believe you're leaving me. How could you do this? 35 years, you've been an associate pastor, two years with me, and now you want to start your own church. So I thought I could poison her or something like that, but that didn't sound like a good idea. Anyway, and so... um. I even had somebody send me an email last year, not a member of a church, but they sent me an email that said, um, you're going to fail miserably when Pastor Pam leaves. You're not going to be able to make it without her. It's interesting. Pastor Pam's church is doing great. We're doing great. We're still friends. We hang out. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Nobody is responsible for my success or my failure but me. Nobody's responsible for my good choices or my sinful choices but me. Nobody's responsible to pay my bills but me. Nobody is responsible for my children but their parents, me and their mom. Nobody is responsible for my happiness or my discouragement but me. We have to learn how to take responsibility for our own life, and we have to learn how to let other people take responsibility for their life. It's very important that we do this. In Exodus 18.13, the Bible says that Moses was busy from morning until night settling the disputes among the people. Two million people, they'd get in a fight. Moses was good at listening. He was a great judge. He was really good at this, so he kept doing it. His father-in-law Jethro came along. God sent him, and Jethro said, Moses, uh, why are you doing this? Why are you spending all your time doing this? The answer that Moses gave is the reason that many of you have unhealthy relationships. Moses said in verse 15, I do this because the people come to me. I give them money because they ask. I hang out with them because they ask. I answer the phone because they call. It's always because they come to me. Now I have a question for you, and we're going to get a little bit harsh, so don't be upset with me. How many of you in this room, by a show of hands, have ever given a person money because God led you to do it? Raise your hand. Because God led you to do it. You gave someone money. Okay. How many of you have ever given somebody money not because God led you to do it, but because they either manipulated you into it, they asked you for it and you felt like you should, or they made you feel guilty because you have more money than them and they made a bad choice and something bad happened? How many of you have ever given money because of that reason? Man. <laughs> Y'all little good sweethearts, um, I have to. Here's what I want to tell you. I know a lot of y'all are thinking, well, I'm sure God was pleased with me anyway. I'm sure God will still bless me because I gave somebody money. Or do we really think that just because you did something good, it was the right thing to do and that God will bless you? Is that how ignorant we are sometimes? If that was the case, why would the next words out of Jethro's mouth to Moses be in verse 17, this thing you're doing is not good. It's actually not good. But, 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 but I'm doing something good. I'm helping these people. No, you're not. It's not good what you're doing. It's not good. Um, sometimes God wants people to learn the consequence of their choices so they won't keep making the same choices. But as long as a crutch keeps coming along and bailing them out, they're never going to realize the wisdom that they need to grow past that, and they're going to continue looking for one crutch after another crutch. It is not our job to fix people. It is not our job to solve everybody's problems or to rescue everyone. Our job is to lead people to Jesus. That is our job. I remember I was watching Dr. Phil several years ago, and this older couple came to him with their 30-something-year-old son. They said, Dr. Phil, you won't believe this, but our son, he still lives at home, and he has no job, 
and he sits in the basement and he drinks beer and watches TV all day long. And they said, on top of that, Dr. Phil, he doesn't even think he has a problem. And Dr. Phil said, I agree 100% with your son. He doesn't have a problem. You have the problem, and if you want him to grow, you have to give him back his problems. Now, I'm not saying to kick somebody out of house and make them starve, none of that stuff. I'm saying stop taking responsibility for other people's poor choices. They will never learn as long as you do that. Um, and let me ask you this. For those of you in here that don't like this sermon and you're thinking, John Paul, you don't know, I love my child and I love this and da 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 Let me ask you. Is all the money and all the energy and all the time that you've invested into trying to help that person, has it actually helped them? That's the question. Have they actually grown? Have they changed? Have they realized? Have they repented? Have they said, man, I'm in this boat because I made a mistake and I'm going to get out of it? Has there been change in their life? Or are you just putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound? In Acts 3, verses 2, it says that there was Peter and John, they went to go pray by the church, and there was a man who was crippled since his birth who was carried every day to the sanctuary to beg for money from people who went into the temple. Now, I want you to look at this passage because it's very unique. It doesn't say this man's friends carried him to the sanctuary. Last week, I told you the definition of a friend. A friend is someone who sharpens somebody else. It doesn't say his friends did this, which is funny because these men did this to him every single day. Surely they knew him. Surely there, were, there was an acquaintance there. They had something in common. But for some reason, even though these same people carried him every day to the sanctuary to beg for money, the Bible does not refer to them as friends. Here's why. They were not biblical friends. Another thing that's funny is they didn't carry him to the grocery store to beg for money. They didn't carry him to the mall to beg for money. They carried him to the most gullible people in town to beg for money. They took him to the church. They didn't take him to the church to grow. They didn't take him to the church to be healed. They took him to the church just to see what he could get out of it. The next, the, the next scripture really, really is amazing to me. In verse 6, here was their response when he begged for money from Peter and John. They said, we have no money for you, but in the name of Jesus, I order you to rise and walk. Interesting, they didn't say we don't have any money. The original language says we have no money for you, but here's what we do have. Get up and walk. They were saying you don't need a crutch. You need God in your life. Um, I know something you're thinking, well, the Bible says that we're supposed to give to the poor. You're right. All through the Bible, it says give to the poor. The definition of the word poor in the Bible is a person who has no roof over their head, no food, and they're unable to work. That's the definition of poor in the Bible. Um, we have a, a ministry here at Solid Rock, our financial counseling ministry. And, um, and every week I get about 8 to 12 calls of uh, people asking for money. 8 to 12 calls a week, and they leave voice messages, and we talk. Everyone that calls, here's what I say to them. I say, come to church on Sunday morning, and I'll pay you $10 an hour. After that, I'll continue to pay you $10 an hour to sit with me as we discuss your finances. We'll see why you're in the boat you're in, how we can make it better. I'll, I'll try my best to help get you a job. If you do that, until I find you a job, I'll pay you $10 an hour to work at church, to pull weeds, to paint, to clean, to things like that. I get about 500 calls a year. Of the 500, about 25 actually show up for church. Of the 25 that show up for church during our financial counseling, um, about 23 of them every year have an excuse for why they're in the boat they're in, and they don't want to change. They don't want to stop buying whatever they're buying. They don't want to stop, they don't want to do like that. 
two a year actually say, I'm in this boat because I made poor choices and I don't want to make the same choices. I'm in this boat because um, I, I, bad, you know, this might have happened, this might happen, but I want to get better. I don't want to live the rest of my life this way. I want to change. We spend about $5,000 a year in this area of ministry. Last year, we actually bought a family transportation, helped them get a job on transportation. They became a productive member of society. They're growing. They're doing great. They're having kids. Everything's fine. Here's the point I want you to see. Out of 500 people, one or two every year make it. And here's the reason. The reason the 498 don't make it is not because there's not money available, because there is. It's not because there's not a job available, because there is. The reason the 498 don't make it, and here's why, because they always seem to find a crutch. It can be a good Christian person, it can be a parent, it can be a friend, but for some reason, they always seem to find a crutch somewhere. So they don't need to stand on their own two feet when they have these. Proverbs 3.13 says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom from God and from life's experiences. We have to let people experience the ups and the downs of life. It's very important. Every one of you in here who are God-reliant people, you're the way you are because you've experienced the fallings of life just as much as you have the ups of life. Um, when my kids were little, we used to give them pacifiers to help soothe them. That was their means of when they're crying, they just pop that thing in their mouth. When they're upset, pop it in their mouth. When they're tired, pop that thing in their mouth and everything was fine. Uh, one of my oldest sons, he's, he's in the next service. He's not in this one, so I can say it. So Zach, when he was seven, he's 17 years old now. I was about to say when he was 17. He's 17 now. When he was a baby, he had so many pacifiers. He could sit on the couch, just stick his hand in the cracks, and there'd be a pacifier. He could be in the, the, the kitchen, just underneath the table. Whoop, there's a pacifier. I put it in his mouth. He could be in the laundry room. He could be in his bedroom, in the bathroom. I mean, there were about 50, 60 passies all over that house. Just pull it out, and he's okay. When he turned three years old, we had the idea of, let's go to Build-A-Bear, and we'll put all of his passies in one of those Build-A-Bear stuffed animals. It was a big dog. That way he can sleep with it at night, but not have it in his mouth so it won't mess up his teeth anymore. And so we were so excited, we went to Build-A-Bear and spent $50 on that stupid stuffed animal and put all them passies in there. That animal felt like it had tumors all over its body with them passies there. You could just feel the passies inside that thing. He was so excited, everything was great. Until we got home that night and it was time for bed. Man, when it was time for bed, he screamed and he cried for that passy. Guess which one of his parents decided to rip open that $50 dog and give him the passy? It was me. I ripped that thing open again. His mom was so mad at me, you wouldn't even believe it. We had to do the whole thing over again the next night and it got worse because I gave him the passy that night. When it came to Asher, our youngest son, when he turned three years old, he had about 50 passies as well. Instead of putting them in a Build-A-Bear, because I'd probably rip the thing open, we got 50 helium balloons, and we tied passies to it, and we sent those balloons to Jesus on his third birthday, and waved goodbyes, they went up in the air. Here's the point. Pacifiers are fine for a season, but if we continue to use them, we will not develop properly. And if you've been a passy for somebody else, unless you want them to have all kind of developmental problems, you got to take that passy away. Now listen, when you take the passy away, when you stop being their provider, emotionally, financially, whatever, they will scream, they will kick, they will oppose you, and they will try to manipulate you into giving them back that pacifier. But you've got to let them stand on their own two feet. you got to let them do it. 
They will they'll argue with you. They'll try everything they can, make you feel awful for how they took care of you when you were little. Whatever the case is, you got to let it go. you got to let it go. Last story, and I'll be done. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses died at 120 years old. It's a very, very sad day for the Israelites. And in verse 8, it says, The people wept for Moses for 30 days, and then the time of weeping and mourning was over. 30 days they wept. What's so interesting about this is Joshua was Moses' best friend, second in command. And even though the 30 days were over, Joshua kept crying. He kept mourning. He was so upset. God came to him in the very next book of the Bible in Joshua 1-2 and said, Moses is dead. Now get up and go to the promised land. Why did God say this? Moses, I mean, Joshua was already at the funeral. He knew Moses was dead, yet God told him he's dead. Get up and go to the promised land. It's because Joshua kept mourning. When a person has served their purpose in our life, if we don't freely let them go, it will keep us from the things God has in our future. We have to recognize when someone's part in our story is over. I think one of the most difficult parts of human relationships is whenever you think in your heart at some point of your life that this person will be there forever. You think, man, they'll be there for the rest of my life. We'll always be together. We'll always be friends. We'll always be married. We'll always be whatever it is. It's even hard. You know, there are parents in this room who have outlived their children. I'm sure whenever your child's born, you automatically, it's just subconscious, you think, they're going to be in my life until I die. I'm going to die first. I'm not going to have to watch, and, and it's it not always the case. We have to recognize when someone's part in our story is ended. Here's what I'm saying. Don't force somebody to stay in your story who doesn't want to stay in your story. Don't force somebody to love you who doesn't want to love you. Don't force somebody to always be there for you who's maybe not supposed to always be. Maybe God just brought them in your life for a season. Hear what God told Joshua in verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Just as I was with Moses when the Ten Commandments were brought down from Mount Sinai, I'm going to be with you. Just as I was with Moses when he told Pharaoh, let my people go, I'm going to be with you. Just as I was with Moses when the Red Sea parted, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be there for you. God wants to be the most important relationship in your life. And sometimes he'll remove people that are crutches so that you can run to him more than them. Amen.